Kia ora and welcome to another podcast in the wonderful series People, Places and the Climate Crisis, a series where I have the privilege of interviewing 16 outstanding climate experts on climate and local government, all in the lead up to the local body elections in October. I'm Lindsay Wood from the Resilience Climate Trust and we're running this series in conjunction with Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station. At the end of the podcast, I'll give you details of the different ways you can listen. But now it's time for this interview with the CEO of Nelson's Chamber of Commerce, Ali Boswick. And Ali and I will be discussing how to make our regional economy less vulnerable to climate. Ali is the first of two guests on this theme, the other being well-known business and climate commentator, Rod Orham. So here's the conversation between Ali and me. I do hope that you enjoy it. Well, it's lovely to be able to welcome Nelson's Ali Boswick to People, Places and the Climate Crisis. Ali is the CEO of the Nelson Chamber of Commerce, but she's also got a great background. She's been the head of international projects at the World of Wearable Arts, and she's been elected as a councillor and had a stint as deputy mayor at Nelson City Council. And Ali's also a trustee of the wonderful Nelson Arts Festival. Ali, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast for People, Places and the Climate Crisis. A pleasure. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be here. I want to start by looking at what you could say seeing problems as an opportunity. These are awful times to predict where our economy is heading. And in fact, even today, there were things on the news about uh, about us possibly heading towards a depression. I hope we're not. But with COVID and the Ukraine war looming large and the climate crisis still overarching even then, it's also a time that may suit some people to see problems as opportunities. One thing seems highly likely, things won't go back to how they were, and arguably neither should they. And I think King Salmon has been had a very difficult season with overheating oceans, and they're learning the hard way about that. In such a dynamic context, can you please give listeners your take on the main sectors of the economy, and I'm talking mainly the regional economy, but you may want to go wider than that, of the economy that are facing inevitable change from climate impacts in the medium term, and how the affected sectors might try to view those problems as opportunities? A massive question to start with, Lindsay. Um, Sorry, Ali. No, no, no problem at all. And I think I, I think I'll start with the King Salmon, actually, you know, the fishing industry is a, a really good example. And obviously for this particular region, um, the blue economy is something that's really important it to is. the region. And it's an area where actually innovation is happening. It just feels that it's happening quite slowly. So with the with the exact example of King Salmon, I mean, one of the things they're trying to work through at the moment is how they actually move into deeper ocean farming, mm. which is something that happens all over the world. And we, you know, quite rightly, they're going through a process where they're actually it's being scrutinized in terms of the environmental impact <laughs> but actually they're the sorts of things that we need to be looking at and, and wondering why that's being held up and they're probably you know there, there are reasons for it but at some point in time it's as a country we have to decide where what we're going to allow to happen in order to retain the economies that we see mm. uh, sorry they're important and at the same time appreciating that those those uh, sectors are also needing to and are looking at how they minimize their impact. So mm. I think, um, you know, this country set itself a really um, lofty target for that particular 
um, sector of having a $3 billion industry by 2035. It currently sits at about $90 million. And yet there's no clear pathway to get there. Mm, that's <laughs> so, a long path between those numbers, isn't it? Uh, it's huge. And, and it's hugely important. And not everything's about money, clearly. Mm. But what we're seeing, actually, is how do we maximize the opportunity in a way that doesn't impact? And and I so I think for them right now, they're, they're, they're working through that. Um, it just sometimes feels a little bit harsh to have one company needing to lead the charge on mm. behalf of the whole country. And hopefully that will bear fruit for them ultimately. But um in terms of the other sectors, you know, it's fair to say that there's no sector of the economy that's not going to be impacted by mm. climate change. I think that's fairly understood. And whether or not that's through direct impact on the where you're physically located mm. or whether or not it's, um, you know, the fact that you're going, there's going to be legislation coming into play whereby we're working towards a zero carbon economy. At some point in time, there's mm. going to be a... Um, you know, it's not going to be incentives that get us there. It's actually going to be legislation that gets us there. So mm. there'll be a, an additional cost for business. So I think that everybody is, you know, starting to think about it, which is good. We're certainly seeing that that's the case. Um, and in the time that I've been at the Chamber of Commerce, which is just over three years now, it's I think the, the, the conversation has changed from something that's a little bit future focused to a little bit more here and now, mm. which is good. <laughs> um, and so obviously we're working to try and do everything we can to, to hold businesses by the hand and yes, sectors yeah. by the hand to take them through that. But it's a very daunting process for people, you know, and I think we can't underestimate that, that actually it is, you know, it's it's where often the biggest problem is where do we begin? How do we actually take that first step? Oh, it is. And and we're all having to let go of stuff that's really pretty precious to us or or fear we're going to have to, even if we don't always. And I suppose and hearing what you were just saying, it went through my mind that some People or organizations are, are dealing with it by evolution, but some of them by revolution, aren't they? Yes. And uh, different different sectors will be hit, affected quite different ways. I, I would like to, in a way it picks up on what you said, I'd like to move into the question of the science of the climate emergency, because it's robust and in many ways it's pretty ominous. And it's reflected in numerous dire IPCC reports and our own zero carbon legislation, as you doubtless know as well. Put simply, we have to decarbonize overall at a massive and ongoing rate of around 10% every year, year on year. And that becomes more formidable for every year we delay. And yet we seem to predicate many strategies on delayed decarbonizing and or on promoting growth, both of which are a bit counterproductive towards decarbonization. How well do you think our economic players and local government register the major mismatch between what we must do and what we seem to expect to do? And have you got any tips you would give to us or to incoming politicians on how to help address this? Good luck. Another big question. Oh, I'd be so <laughs> popular if I could answer this question, wouldn't I? Get it right. <laughs> Make yourself popular, please, Ali. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it is, you know, it, 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 I remember, you know, I was, it, and I've heard it said several times, we're in the situation, you know, with a frog in the pot at the moment where it's a slow boil. So actually mm. we're not seeing the immediate, you know, while we mm. are seeing mm. people thinking about it more, it isn't a COVID mm response we're not no. getting that same thing so so what we're seeing is that there is that mismatch at the moment because people still see it as oh there's quite a few years hence before we've got to get to that point mm. it is it is a, a massive um it is a massive target that we're trying to meet but i think the 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 main thing that i would say is that we've just got to we are already on that train and we are seeing innovation in this space and while growth is something that we 
naturally seem, you know, we aspire to. We've seen that productivity in this region is very low compared to other regions. And so that's actually not great because what would that means is actually our people are working harder for less. Mm. <laughs> so, But that doesn't mean to say that we necessarily just need to extract more in order to get more money. We don't need to just chop down more trees and sell them. It's actually how we work with what we've got to add value, which doesn't actually mean that we're just taking more and that we're also replacing. Yes, so it's about, yeah. it's about thinking about how we do that. And, and again, I mean, these are very big concepts for, for people to, to think about. But I, the main thing I think is to really impress upon people. And it's something that working with the team for, with businesses for climate action and the mission zero campaign you know it's about actually noting that we're on that track it's not about being perfect mm. because i think the trouble is we're trying to get to perfection in our minds and that's scary so we don't take the first step that's a really interesting concept thank you please go on so well so so we need to accept the fact that actually we just need to 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 be at the place where we are and we've been using the analogy or or the team have come up with the analogy it's a bit like going to the gym you know, some people go to the gym because they've got to do everything. They're in such bad shape. Mm, yeah. So they go and they've got to get there and it's really hard and everything else. But actually the fact that they're even in the gym is great mm. because they're not sitting on the sofa getting yeah. worse. Yeah, they're actually point. trying to do something. So, and then there are some people who are fantastic, you know, they're already doing a hundred pull-ups and they're, they're fine. And so they're kind of ahead of the curve. So it's that continuum. And mm. I think what we have to do is remind people that, not to feel overburdened by it because then you become paralyzed. Mm. So we need to really encourage people just to take those first steps in the way that works for them. Um, in terms of what I would tips I would give to incoming mayors and councillors, I think it's basically not to drop the ball and actually just to keep it front and center with mm. everything that is done. So every decision that is made has got to have that lens put over it. How is this actually going to impact? Mm. What leadership role are we taking to demonstrate to the community that this is important? Mm. And that's, I think, the best thing that the, that that those in, those organizations can do is lead by example. That's that's what they are. They're leaders. Mm. They should be doing that and how we, we, I guess, hold them to account to say, look, every single thing you do, think about it. That's not to say you don't do things mm. because actually this also, this situation does lead to innovation. I met a really interesting man on the plane the other day, which I'm just going to tell you about because yeah, he, told, he told me something that, um, you know, I should get chatting with people on a plane and mm. probably shouldn't be admitting I was on a plane. But um <laughs> And he was talking about the fact he's working for a trust in the Hawke's Bay that's looking at soil health particularly, but also looking at how soil sequesters carbon in a much greater way than was formerly understood. Wow. And you only need a small percentage of more of 10% more of carbon to be sequestered to have a huge impact that's mm. far more beneficial than planting trees. So there are people that's a small trust in Hawke's Bay that's working mm. on this. We've got all of these groups coming of these innovative ideas and people really putting their minds to this. So it doesn't have to be as as daunting as we think it is, but it's about keeping it front and center. Isn't it exciting when you happen to chance sitting by someone like yeah. that? I love, yeah. I love that I sort of thing. It was great. Um, just picking back to the the councillor thing, mm. with the current mayor Rachel Reese announcing she's not going to stand again. Mm. I noticed in the interview with her, one of the things she said was, "I wished I'd done more about climate change." So that mm -hmm. echoes rather what you were saying, doesn't it? Not Absolutely. about her, but as a general no. thing. And it's very difficult, you know, every, we're all individuals trying to have our own sphere of influence. And it takes a lot of energy to maintain that. And I think, mm. you know, we all probably wish we'd do more. <laughs> so yeah, I think indeed. it's a common theme. I'd like to move now into, um, if you like, a project mm. that, that the Chamber was actually active in as a response initially to, to the COVID situation, but I think it's got broader connections. Mm. Um, 
when we have big times of change, we have to expect a level of upheaval. And the more prepared we are in advance, the less impacted we'll be by these changes. And I recall the remarkable forward-looking project Kokiri, which was a response by the Chamber of Commerce and other organizations to the upheaval of the first COVID lockdown. And, and you did an amazing job getting that out during the lockdown pretty well. I think it's a telling example in many ways, and it also references climate extensively, although personally I found it a little bit too focused on sea level rise, but we don't need to go there. There are also, of course, obvious shifts in sectors affected by decarbonisation, such as agriculture and the automotive and construction sectors. Where do you see Project Kokiri fitting into the overall way our region engages with economic resets under climate change? And what parts do you see other major institutions and councils especially playing in that? I'm not going to let you off the big question issues. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, and I think the, the great thing about Project Corkley, and I just say it at the start, it was the collaboration that came together, as you said. So while the Chamber of Commerce was involved in that, it was absolutely a partnership with the Regional Development Agency, both councils, mm. and it now sits with the Regional Development Agency as the natural sort of home of that. Mm. But, um, you know, I think, but the thing also to say is that when and it was absolutely a response to what was happening with COVID. We had no idea. We were expecting unemployment to be up at, you know, 15%. Mm, yeah. There were all sorts of sort of things that were coming out at the time, which meant that we needed to really get on the front foot. And kukuri, if you don't know, means actually to, to attack, to move forward. So mm. we actually, we used that as a, we were in a war room situation, essentially, to try right. and deal with this. So um, on the, uh, using that um, as an opportunity for collaboration, we came together. But the brilliant thing was we were able to draw upon the work that had already been done through the Tatawihu Intergenerational Strategy, Wonderful. which had been done prior to that. So, so what we already had was a framework, I guess, that guided that strategy. And for those people who don't know what the Tatawihu Intergenerational Strategy is, it's um, I won't go into great detail about it because I'm sure you'll cover but, it at some point. Well, we will, but it's also going out to a national nationwide audience, so yeah. not everybody well, will know of it. Yeah, well, so so essentially, it was um, it was initiated by Wakatu Incorporation, but very quickly supported by the mayors or the councils, I should say, across the top of the south, so Marlborough, Nelson, and Tasman, and it started off as an economic development strategy, looking at a very long horizon, five hundred years hence. Mm. But also, what became clear through all of that, um, the project development was actually the environment and climate change, climate impact was so central to everything that actually it became very much about how do we protect the environment? No, how do we enhance it? Not even just protect mm, it, but yes. how do we make it better Good in point. order to ensure that what we have going into the future is what better than what we've got now? So when Project Kokori came into being, and it really was around the, the response to, you know, how is this going to impact on businesses, we could use that as a guiding document to actually help us frame up what we wanted to do in that space. So the environment came through very clearly in that. And you you do say, I mean, obviously, you know, um, we sort of, it's focused a little bit on sea level rise. And I think while that's not everything, it's actually a useful thing because it's a very, it's a very <laughs> visual thing. And, and I think that's part of the problem we have is people don't necessarily see, you know, the, the climate change on a daily basis, but sea level rise is something that they can actually understand. Mm. So I think that there's, there's a, a, a reason for that in Thank some you. ways. Yeah, good point. Um, but again, it's just, you know, it's, it's how I view the world, a very simplistic little boxes sometimes. But um, I think in terms of, yes, the focus around how businesses need to or sectors need to really future focus themselves or, or position themselves to be able to still be 
um, to operate, to be able to mm. be viable in the future, considering what's happening with climate change. And you picked, I mean, obviously agriculture and the automotive industry particularly, but, you know, we're seeing already that um, great strides in um, in vehicles and how, you know, obviously there's electri- electrification of the fleet happening, mm. albeit at a small level, but we're seeing that the government is putting a lot of emphasis on this. And I think I was just hearing that um, the minister, one of the ministers is going up to Northern Europe very soon, up to Scandinavia to understand how they've actually done this effectively. Mm. Because it's because it's one thing to have electric vehicles. It's another thing to have enough electricity to charge to- those vehicles. Totally, yes. So, and, <laughs> and while we pride ourselves on having a lot of renewable, renewable energy sources in this country, actually, you know, the transmission is still very, um, it's not efficient. So actually, there's still a cost, a cost mm. to the environment for transmitting that across great distances, notwithstanding security issues and all those sorts of things. But uh, and, and it's also quite a daunting expansion of the generation capacity to service all yeah. vehicles and industry too, isn't Huge. it? Huge. So it's so it's understanding, I guess, from those sectors, how do they um, use new technology for um particularly for um, power generation, if that's something mm. that they need in order. If I'm thinking about agriculture, not only does it have the, the impact of actually what it's putting on and how it's using the land, it's also a, a, a sector that uses a lot of transport and heavy mm. transport. So again, you know, the, the wine industry, if you just think of, of that particular sector and how many times up and down the country, you know, vehicles are going up and down lines of vines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you that's know, true, isn't it? You know, they're traveling the length of this country hundreds of thousands of times a year. And that's a lot of diesel that's been burned. Mm. So, so you know, I think it's how we um, work with those sectors to identify what are the things that can change and then make sure that the support systems mm. are in place to change them. Yeah. Uh, not easy, but no. to, needs to be done. But there's again, there's innovation happening. And I think it's about us realizing that actually we can't put our head in the sand. We've just got to look forward to what those technologies could be. Look at hydrogen. How is that actually really working? Mm. Is it something that we can get behind? Mm. But I think the electrification of the fleet, and we've got Air New Zealand who are looking at having a, an electrified domestic fleet within the next 10 years. Mm. That's a lot of planes to charge. It's a huge lot, isn't it? And and on a technology that's only just evolving too. Exactly, so. mm. exactly. So so I think we'll see great strides. And I, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a naturally optimistic person. I think we've got some really clever people out there mm. who actually are thinking about this a lot and mm. they're putting a lot of energy and effort into it. And I think that the answers are there. We've just got to get behind them and support those people and not expect everything to be perfect the first time. And I think that's it. You know, we we, we can be quite demanding as people. <laughs> we expect someone has always got mm. the answer. You know, we actually have to accept the fact that we have to work through this. I just want to dial back a little bit for listeners Ali and I were chatting briefly before we started recording this interview, and we touched base on the Titawihu intergenerational strategy. And we both said that we were both inspired by the, you could call it a tagline of it, of being good ancestors. And that was a really concept that we took to heart, both of us, without knowing the other had done it, wasn't it? Absolutely. I think it is that, that you know, um, tupuna pono, be good ancestor, mm. is a very, the vision of the strategy. I found that when I first heard it, it's such a powerful concept because it immediately puts it all on you. It's mm. not about, you know, it's not about future generations. It's actually about you be a good ancestor. It, it and I think that's that's actually, a, it's a very, it switches it. And um, I say last year we had our Aspire conference and that was the theme of our conference was mm. be good ancestors. Okay, well, let's move on. And I want to talk a bit about the spectrum of business responses now. Mm. We've got some inspirational businesses in our region in a climate sense and the beverage company Cheer Sisters stands out to me as being one of those. 
And yet Tasman's federated farmers don't even mention climate among their six priority issues. This represents a huge spectrum of approaches towards decarbonizing and at times is seen, unfortunately, I think, as a them and us divide. Do you have suggestions as how we can work constructively to reduce the divisiveness and to expand the sense of shared ownership for addressing cl the climate problem that we know it's inescapable? And again, how do you see perhaps local government as being a player in this game? Yeah, and I do think, unfortunately, things do fall into a bit of us and, us and them. Excuse me. Mm. I think um, what we do have to think, uh, we, we have to create the forum and the platform where people come together and agree on what they agree on. And I don't think we do that enough. Mm. So I think we need to be able to say, because I suspect that while federated farmers don't have it in their top six priorities, it is a priority for them in many ways. And for well, it individual be, farmers, it? It, will be. <laughs> it does. So it's a, it's a question of actually how do we bring those people together? And again, I have to, you know, tip my hat to Businesses for Climate Action and the Mission Zero campaign mm. for doing that because they've got this forum of leaders that they're bringing together from different sectors to talk about it. So it's about, and it's about not laying blame on people. I think as mm. you know, people retreat as soon as they're accused of something or there's a sense of blame, then everyone just goes to their corner and nobody's willing to talk. Mm. We have to create that forum where people come and sit together and actually and so I think from that perspective, I think it is, it's probably a, a whole of regional approach to it. It may be something, again, you know, that councils can be involved in to create that space. I have to say, I, I, would, I did see say, because I, 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 I sort of knew this question was coming up, but also I was sent a, a, a diagram or a, a table yesterday from a colleague who um, KPMG actually yesterday released their annual agribusiness agenda, where they basically talk to people in the agribusiness and they ask mm. them what their top 10 priorities are. And initiatives for a net zero carbon future sit at number seven. Wow. And so, so that, so it is, you're right. I mean, it's not in the, it's in the top 10, but it's not in not the top five. And mm. um, so it was interesting to see in relation to other things with world-class biosecurity being important. So food security, which mm. again is important and mm. certainly is, but it's, I see that as part and parcel of it. So they're all connected, actually, aren't they? They're all connected. So in a way, actually having that as a separate item feels slightly wrong. It's something that should underpin everything because mm. if you look at the priorities, which are things like um, signing high quality trade agreements, well, countries that only want to go and go do business with us, actually, if we're protecting our environment. Mm. Yeah, so actually, right. if we're moving towards a carbon zero, so for me, it's it's interesting that it's actually separated out as a priority, and maybe that's the KPMG. I should have a discussion with them yeah, <laughs> about how they count, right. how they yeah. actually put those questions mm. out there because I mm. I think that it's not about having it as a separate thing. It's it's a bit it's a bit like you know the the Tatawi who intergenerational intergenerational strategy. It surrounds everything, mm. so you can't separate it and say, oh, we're going to do world class biosecurity no. today, but we're actually not going to bother yeah, about climate's climate. not my thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. They're so they're so interlinked. Anyway, mm. that that just struck me as a. I think, as I say, maybe I'll give KPMG a ring and have a chat with them about good it. Good on you. Good luck with that. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll probably hit the receptionist and she'll put the phone down. But no, I think um, it is important to to say, you know, that it is that we have we're going to have those people who are the leaders and the first movers, like you say, the cheer sisters. You know, we've got and they're a B Corp certified. I know, company amazing. Now. I think the world's they're, first beverage company or something. Yeah, and they? there are very few in New Zealand, and it's a mm. big hurdle to to cross. So mm. you know, it's fantastic to have those companies that are taking those steps. But it's about again, it's as I say, it's about getting people in the room in the same space, agreeing what they agree on, and then sharing mm. with each other and saying how they yes. did it and how they mm. helped. It's not about being defensive. That's the last thing no. we want. We'll go nowhere. So that room you're talking about needs to be a safe place, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. Yeah, people go there and feel okay sharing without thinking they're going to face a liability charge or get dumped on or something. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody's doing their best. Yeah, I I loved your um, your opening that said we need to a forum that we agree on what we can agree on. You know, that's a wonderful. Mm -hmm. What have we got in common? Sort of thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we better move on, Ali. Even though I'm sure we could talk more about that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the Nelson regional economy. Mm-hmm. Until very recently, descriptions of our regional economy described five pillars of marine, farming, forestry, hort and viticulture, and tourism. But that seems already to be shifting. For example, the infometric snapshot of 2021, and I think I sent you a copy mm-hmm. of that, it shows mm-hmm. ag, forestry, and fishing combined as less than say construction or healthcare. Mm. And in fact, we've recently had the region's future development strategy. And if you read that, you think we're becoming a ginormous retirement village. Um, if you look 20 years ahead into your crystal ball, mm. what would you expect to see if we have transitioned successfully to a climate responsible economy? There's an easy question for you. Oh, yeah, really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're all so easy, Lindsay. Um, Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think what we would, well, if we transition to a climate responsible economy, then we would have excellent public transport in the system, in the the region. Mm -hmm. You know, we would actually be getting people out of vehicles or into different modes of transport, top of the list. Well, We would actually actually be looking at having um, businesses that really do understand what, where they sit in terms of that um, that climate change continuum and are working towards actually improving. And I think, you know, construction is interesting because construction, as we know, creates waste. It's, it's a, a sector that actually um, is work, you know, works very hard to um, to minimise those those things. But actually, it's quite difficult if you think about mm. concrete and the, you know, we, we've got a we've got a building industry that is led by safe building practices that don't necessarily lend themselves to alternative materials. Yeah, that makes well sense. No, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I watch around town and you see big concrete tilt slabs going in everywhere and that's fine for the building and the safety of the building. And we know that a lot of that's come from mm. Christchurch earthquake. It's not so great if you're actually trying to build a car, a, a, a building that is actually zero carbon. Exactly. You know? yes. So, so how do we actually help that, that sector transition more easily and, and open up the regulation so mm. it's not beholden to the, each individual company to go and convince the councils that this material is good. It's actually, you know, if we're using local wood and using that in our construction, it's a whole lot better. So I would hope that if I see 20 years from now that actually we've got a lot more wooden buildings mm-hmm. that are using materials that are actually grown in the region and fabricated in the region to the develop those buildings and we're not just pouring concrete into the ground mm. because I think that that's something that um yeah we, we need to move away from um in terms of other other um sectors I mean they're so wide reaching but you know tourism tourism is an interesting one because it will come back you know we're a very attractive place we've yes. got natural we've got natural good looks we've got great weather you know we're in a, a really good position to attract tourism the, the trick is that we in 20 years from now, the tourists that come here understand the values that we have. They understand the Tatawi intergenerational mm. strategy and that we want to be good ancestors. So therefore, we expect you when you come to our region will also be a good ancestor on our behalf. So I think it's how we start to build that into our language and people understand what we're talking about. And, and, and it, it resonates with people so well. And I think we also will see that our, our, our exporters 
20 years hence, will also be articulating this in everything that they do. Mm -hmm. So that when we're sending stuff overseas, which we know comes with certain levels of complication in terms of particularly, you know, until we have got alternative sources of fuel and we're not burning carbon to get things there, how we can actually use where we live and where we how we behave as a benefit to those businesses so that they actually are telling that story well. I think that mm. all of those things are what I would hope to see 20 years from now. No, that's great. And uh, and you've opened answered very well in a lot of dimensions. I just want to pick up one thing connecting this with the series, which has got a local government flavor. And that is you talked about making it easier to reuse materials and not be so locked in. Do you see local government as having a role there in deregulating or re-regulating a sector like that? Is that part of their function? And, and should elected members be thinking, I want to make a platform of that sort of thing? I absolutely do. I think it's very difficult. I'm not, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. Mm. I think that we've got ourselves regulated mm. to a point where people find it incredibly difficult to make the changes that we need to make in order to get the mm. benefits we're looking for. I think it's just, and I think, We've got an interesting situation as well in Nelson, Tasman and Marlborough, where we're unitary authorities. So mm. what that means essentially is the, the local council is also the regulatory arm. So essentially, it's kind of schizophrenic. You've got these two bits going you know, <laughs> at odds with each other, where you've got the elected members who have got vision and they want to do things, they want to make change, and mm. they've got a community behind them supporting that. And then they bat up against the, the regulation that sits within the same organisation which isn't the same in every part of the country because mm. there are regional councils that have that regulatory role who will come down on a council and say, oh, you know, you've just overstepped the mark and you haven't got a resource consent when yes. you need it, all of those things. We've got that within one organisation. So mm. it makes, from the outside looking in, it looks mad <laughs> because actually what you've got is this organisation that regulates itself. Yeah. It's a um, bit like, sorry, carry on. And Well, I just... I just think that is fundamentally wrong, personally. Yeah. Other people will probably disagree with me. They'll be jumping up and down. They'll be writing comments underneath this video now. But I actually think that that puts us in a very difficult place. I'd write off the top of my head, but is that in a way a political or procedural expedience that we've got relatively small councils? You know, Tasman and Nelson mm. are only a bit over 50,000 people each occupying a very similar space, even though they're different sizes. Should we have a regional council as well in that space, do you think? Or is this a thing where government should be setting regulations more for us to, to defuse that, that inter, internal look that you've talked about before? You probably don't want to get me onto amalgamation, Lindsay. We could talk about that forever. <laughs> but Next interview. <laughs> yeah. There, there is there is a sense in actually not having that sitting within the councils, I think, because mm. what it does make it very difficult then for councils to move. So where actually if you had if you were a council and you were able to like push forward on an agenda and a vision and you're then not the bad guy at the same time stopping yourself doing it. It, it just has a very different relationship with your mm. community because they see that you're trying to champion this. So then if, if somebody else is actually saying you can't do it, you can all fight against them together. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to fight against the same people who are trying to do the good thing. I just think it's ended as it's got us into such a complex place because the regulation has become so strong and so stringent. And it's, you know, you understand, I, I totally understand, you know, Christchurch had a very significant earthquake and it was a really, mm. it was a thing we needed to respond to. Other things have happened that have meant that regulation has come down much harder. But I think is what we have as well as a bit of a difficulty within Nelson Tasman 
where we've got a very small community, two small communities side by side. Mm. We've got businesses that operate in both and have completely different experiences with councils in their space. So for the same thing. So we hear it, you know, around buildings, about building consents. And it's it's not say that they either are doing anything wrong or they just do it differently Mm. because Mm. people interpret things differently. So we need to be in a situation where actually it's much more seamless than that. It sounds like you're saying it's not a good thing to have the good cop and the bad cop as the same person. Exactly. As I say, it just makes us a double-headed, you know, I don't want to say monster, a double-headed creature. (laughs) Fantastic. Great imagery. Thanks, Ali. Well, all good things come to an end and and our interview needs to come to an end too. But one of the things listeners will know that I love having an expert like you on because I can finish off by inviting you to to finish the show by nominating your top take-home climate message or messages for the population generally, but also for listeners wanting to factor climate change into the coming election. And I would say those listeners might be the voting public or they might be politicians who are putting themselves up. So over to you to give us your top take-home message, please. Um, I think the main thing, as I've said before, is to keep it front and centre. We can't let it drop out of sight because it's not going to go away. Mm. And it is, but I think the thing is to support the innovation that's happening even if we're not sure how it's going to end, if people are actually, if people are innovating in such a way that actually helps us mitigate this situation, we need to support them to do that. Mm. And, and I do come back to, you know, don't be, don't be fearful about it and feel that you can't make a difference. It's where everybody's on a different part of the, the continuum for this. Mm. And you may, you know, you may be the person doing the hundred pull-ups every morning and feel good about yourself because you're actually, you know, carbon positive and everything's sweet in your world. Or you may be the person at the other end of the spectrum who's actually just starting to walk through the door. But I think it's actually understanding that that's all fine and that will we all need to at some point just engage with this and take it head on and not shy away from it. Wonderful. Thank you. What a great note to finish on. And I would say I think we're very lucky to have you as the CEO of the Chamber because <laughs> you no, but you join these dots in a particularly effective way. So more power to your elbow. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you so much for joining us and sparing your time for this interview. No problem. Lovely lovely to be here. Thanks, Lindsay. Isn't it such a privilege to be able to hold a conversation with someone like Ali Boswick and to be able to tap into her incredible range of experience and, and insights? Now, I promise to give you listening options for the series People, Places and the Climate Crisis. You can listen to the full interview with each guest on their own podcast. And these are available on Spotify, Apple and other main platforms and can be linked from my firm's website, which is at www.resilience, that's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-Z, resilience.co.nz. And there you will find links to our podcast page. You'll also find links to Fresh FM's uh, website, their broadcasting frequencies, and so on. Um, And as always, I want to give a shout-out to Kahu Sanson Burnett, who's doing a great job as my sound tech and as getting these up to podcasts. And, of course, a big shout-out to you, our listeners. Thank you so much for joining this important discussion. We have many more fascinating experts coming up on the series, and I do hope we enjoy your company for them too, including next up on the on the. Well, next up on the same theme is Rod Oram, and then after that we will have two wonderful speakers on regenerating nature. 
And as always, kia kaha for the climate.